1938 marked the discovery of nuclear fission by German scientists that at once made the atomic bomb a theoretical possibility. As World War II broke out, the fears were real that the Germans would develop such a weapon first. And so a group of scientists, including Albert Einstein, sent a letter to President Roosevelt urging the U.S. to start stockpiling uranium ore and accelerating research into nuclear weapons. And consequently, the Manhattan Project was born. But atomic weaponry was just a theory. Theoretically, it was possible, but it had never been done before. Scientists had to actually figure out how do you enrich uranium? How do you sustain a chain reaction? How do you turn into a bomb? These were all uncharted waters. But the theoretical possibility of a bomb was enough for the U.S. to sink enormous resources into. The initial budget for the Manhattan Project was $6,000. It quickly became $2 billion, which today is $22 billion. The Army constructed dozens of plants and labs all throughout the country to support the work, employing 130,000 people. The net result was that by the summer of 1945, the U.S. had produced four atomic bombs. Those four bombs cost the same amount of money, pretty much, as all of the small arms from the entire war. And this is all based on theory. No one had ever seen an A-bomb before. It had never been detonated. No one knew if it was really going to work. But that too changed. On July 16, 1945, in the desert of New Mexico, the first atomic bomb was dropped and fused the sand into glass all around it. And as you know, the next few bombs will be dropped in Japan, ending the war, and the atomic era began. But think about that first detonation, the first time it went off. Think about what that signified. When the bomb went off, it was a powerful vindication that the scientists were right. Their theory was true, the science, the Manhattan Project, all the spending, everything was vindicated in an instant when that bomb went off. Also, when the first bomb went off, you know that the science didn't change. The science behind the atomic theory, it didn't become more true. It didn't change at all. But the theory was displayed. It was vindicated to be true in a powerful way. And the rest is history. Well, it's not a perfect parallel, but the Bible likewise teaches the absolute necessity for your faith claim to be vindicated, to be demonstrated as true. Salvation is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved by confessing Christ as your Lord and Savior. But how do we know that your faith claim is true? Now, at first, your faith lives entirely in your heart or your mind, and, and that's okay. That's appropriate. That's where saving faith is meant to live. But how do others know you have the real thing? How do you know you have true, living, saving faith? Because there is such a thing as a false faith, so how do you know? Well, your faith needs to be vindicated. It has to move from your head and your mind to your hands, to your feet, and reveal itself in action. That's how you know. When your faith produces works or fruit, That doesn't make your faith any more real. It was real when you first believed and enough to save you. But such deeds make your faith visible and vindicate it as the real thing. As the atomic bomb goes off, so to speak, then you know you have the demonstration that your faith is living and not dead. To the contrary, though, those whose lives are barren of fruit, who consistently show the absence of obedience to God's will in their lives. They never have any vindication of their faith. As time goes on, their faith is never seen in their deeds. And that's a problem. That's like the atomic bomb sitting on the tower and never going off. It never drops. It never detonates. I mean, it's supposed to. That's what it was designed to do. It should be doing that, but it never does. And that would start to call into question whether or not you had the real thing to begin with. In fact, we'd even say that faith that exists only in the mind and never shows itself in action, well, that's not, that's not faith at all. And you don't have to take my word for that. That's precisely the point that James makes in James chapter 2. And so you can open your Bibles now to James chapter 2. 
I knew immediately when I started preaching through James that when we got to chapter 2, we would slow things down quite a bit. That's because James 2 is notorious for some challenging teaching on faith and works in salvation. You know, as Protestants, we're all about faith and faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone, and that's true. The true gospel is that unrighteous sinners like us, we can be saved entirely by God's grace, working through our faith alone and Jesus Christ alone, apart from the works or any works or deeds. Salvation is by faith. And that fact is taught all throughout Scripture, which we studied in detail in the previous weeks, like Galatians 2.16, where Paul says a man is justified, not by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 3.28, a man is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. It's everywhere. It's clear. There's no other gospel than salvation by faith alone. But it's this fact that makes James 2 a bit challenging because on the surface, seems to say otherwise. Specifically, the passage we'll be looking at this morning, it appears to say the exact opposite of that really clear message in Scripture that salvation or justification is by faith alone, apart from works. But what do you make of this passage? Look at James 2, verses 20 through 24. He says, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so right there, especially in verse 24, he seems to be saying the exact opposite of what Paul teaches about justification by faith alone and not works. And so like I said, given the apparent challenges, I knew when we got to this passage, we would slow it down so you could make sure you are getting this for yourselves and can see it unfold for yourselves. And we've done that. This is part six, after all, if you're joining us here today for the first time. But now the time has come to grab the bull by the horns and just figure out what is James himself saying right here in this passage? What does he mean? How is this not a contradiction with Paul? What does he mean when he says we're justified by works? And how should this impact our life and our faith? Well, it's about time that we find out. So I want to walk through these verses and just explain to you what James means in this passage so that you might come to a true understanding of faith and works in salvation. And we'll do this by way of contrast. This will be a study in contrast. You'll see what I mean as we go along. But let me offer you three critical contrasts to help you understand the role of faith and works in salvation. Three critical contrasts to help you get straight the role of faith and works in salvation. The first is a contrast of faith. A contrast of faith. You know, in this whole passage, confusion comes when you don't understand James's argument. If you pluck this verse or these words out of context, you're bound to get them wrong. So before we resume at verse 20, let's just briefly rewind to verse 14 so I can remind you of, of this cumulative argument that he's building. It started back in verse 14. As we established before in this passage, James is building a contrast of faith, two types of faith. James 2 is not a contrast between faith and works. That's the number one mistake people make when they come to this passage. They're like, you know, Paul, he's all about salvation by faith. But James is all about salvation by works. It couldn't be further from the truth. James is not even building a contrast here between faith and works. That's not the contrast. As if there are two different modes of salvation. There's only one mode of salvation. It's faith alone. James knows that. 
Rather, he's building a contrast here between two different types of faith, living faith and dead faith, saving faith, non-saving faith, a useful faith and a useless faith, he says. So look again at verse 14 from before. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? It's important to remember the opponent James is facing off with here. It may be an imaginary conversation, but the false teaching behind this is very true. That's what he's writing against. Paul, in his writings, like Galatians, like Romans, he was going up against legalists like the Judaizers. These were guys that were teaching that you need to be justified by works. You've got to keep the law of Moses to be saved. And so he writes, against them saying, no, justification is by faith alone, apart from any works of the law. But, but James is not writing against those people, against legalists. He's up against the antinomians. Remember that word? It refers to those who believe the law doesn't matter at all. Remember, James is a Jewish Christian audience. And so likely a lot of these people who had come to Christ, they grew up in Judaism And they were told that to be saved, you've got to keep the law of Moses, justification by works. But they came to learn about Jesus. They came to believe in him as the Messiah, and they found freedom from the law of Moses in Christ. But it seems likely that some of them, many of them, took this freedom too far, as if they were free from all law, all obedience, all righteous living before God. So you see them swinging from legalism to antinomianism where, hey, the gospel is just faith in Jesus. We just have to believe in Jesus. Then we can do whatever we want. We're not free to live however we want. And so in verse 14, James is dealing with someone who says he has faith. He makes a claim of faith, but he has no works, meaning this is someone who has a profession of faith, but doesn't live it out. They believe in Jesus. They assent to the facts of the gospel in their mind, but they don't walk the walk. They're not living in obedience to God's will. And so that is the person James is dealing with here. The one who views faith as mere intellectual assent. And so James says of that person, what use is that type of faith? What use? The answer is no use. Can that faith save him? Of course not. Again, he's not questioning, can faith save? Of course, faith can save. But he's saying, can that faith save? That type of faith that exists only in your mind, can intellectual assent save? And the answer James gives is no. That's not true faith. And next he gives an illustration to show how useless such a faith is. Look again at verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? What use is that? None. It's a no good type of faith. It's not good for others. It's not good for salvation. It's just a useless faith. It's not even faith, he would say. And so verse 17, he says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. This type of faith is dead. How do you know it's dead? It doesn't move. It doesn't act. It doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. Salvation is by faith alone, but it's got to be a living faith. And how do you know if you have a living faith? Well, it, it lives, produces works bears fruit. And if you planted a fruit tree and then a year goes by and two, three, five years go by and hasn't grown and it doesn't bear any fruit, sorry to break it to you. You have a dead tree. It's just a dead tree. It's not alive because if it were by its nature, it would be bearing fruit. And likewise, the professing Christian who does not work merely reveals their faith is dead. It's not real faith. 
And this is the type of faith James is writing against. And so just to finish the recap, verse 18, he says, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. He develops a contrast here between two people. One person has faith and it results in works. He can actually show and and demonstrate his faith by his deeds. The other person has an intellectual assent faith only. He can't show it. There's nothing to see. He has claims. He believes in Jesus, but you wouldn't know that by looking at him. And the point James makes is that type, that intellectual assent only faith is just worthless. Verse 19, that's, that's the faith of demons. If you define faith as merely you know, believing the facts of Jesus and assenting to the truth, then by that definition, demons have faith. They know all the facts. They, they believe all the facts, but that clearly does them no good. They're still condemned. And so are such people whose faith exists only in their minds. It makes sense, right? James is not saying anything new here. He's merely repeating what scripture says all over. And now it's in this same line of reasoning, though, that he gets to verse 20. So you can't just start at verse 20. But it's in the same argument that he gets to verse 20 and carries on. Verse 20. He says, but are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Need he say more? Are you willing to recognize it now? Do you get it? Or are you still so foolish that faith without works is useless? It's no good. It's like a tree that doesn't bear any fruit. And the point James is making is such a useless, dead faith can't save you. It's not a saving faith. All right, so, so far, James has shown us what a dead faith looks like. It's barren of works. Now it's time to see what a living faith, what a saving faith looks like. And for this, James turns to Father Abraham to show the type of faith that saves. And what do you know? The type of faith that saves is the type of faith that produces what? Works. And so we find next a contrast of works. Secondly, a contrast of works. Look at verse 21. He says next, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now we'll talk about what James means by justified in a minute. But it should already be clear by the context what he's getting at here. He's not trying to say Abraham was saved by works. Rather, Abraham showed his faith by his works. It's evident from verse 22. Look there. He says, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. So you see, James views Abraham as already possessing faith when he offered up Isaac on the altar. He already possessed true faith, but when he offered up Isaac, his faith was perfected. Now, we've got to talk about what that means too, but first we've got to back it up and talk about Abraham. So if you want to follow along in a little detour, you can you know, keep your finger in James and, and turn to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Years before, God had sovereignly called and, and chosen Abraham to be the father of a great nation. He would make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven. Abraham had no heir though. And his wife, Sarah, was beyond childbearing years. So how could this be? But as you recall, God enabled Sarah to miraculously conceive in her old age. And God gave them a child of promise. Just one, Isaac. Now, all of God's promises to and through Abraham would flow through Isaac. He was the child of promise. All the blessings would now come through him and his descendants. So you know what? That also means nothing bad had better happen to Isaac. 
Because then, well, even God would be found a liar. So that can't happen, right? We fast forward many years after that to Genesis 22, and it's time for Abraham's faith to be tested. That's what's happening here. Look at Genesis 22, verse 1. It says, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. That's just crazy. I mean, how can that be? Isn't God opposed to child sacrifice? But this command comes from God directly. But, but then again, you know, Isaac, he's the child of promise. So if he's killed, all of God's promises would fail and, and God himself would be found a liar. So that can't happen, right? But still, this is God's clear, direct command to Abraham. And so this is, this is a profound test. Take it for granted, but what would you do? Would you obey? What did Abraham do? He just went. He obeyed. There's no argument, no talking back, no questioning, nothing recorded. He just obeyed the voice of God. And you might wonder, like, how could he do that? How could he even contemplate killing his own child whom he loved? Is he heartless or ruthless? Well, no, even Genesis 22 reveals Abraham was a man of great faith. And he just simply trusted God will provide. God will somehow do what is right in the end. God's going to fulfill his word no matter what. Even death could not stop God from fulfilling his promises. Abraham didn't have the answers. He just genuinely trusted this God. He trusted and he obeyed. So he went. He really trusted. Look at verse 5. says, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. So you see somehow, some way, Abraham believed they were both coming back. Verse six, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Now, we don't know how old Isaac was, but he was old enough to carry a load of wood. So he's, he's not a kid. He's likely a young adult, maybe older. He's also old enough to notice, verse 7, like, hey, we've got fire. We've got wood. Where's the lamb? Like, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham tells, us, tells him in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb. At some point, though, Isaac realized there's not going to be a literal lamb. Like, he's the lamb. But you know what? Isaac cooperated. Look at verse 9. It says, Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. You know, we learn from this that Isaac was a man of faith too. Because most likely he's old enough to resist and overpower his father, Abraham, who's over a hundred years old at this point. So it wouldn't have been hard. But both of them placed their trust in God and both of them were acting just in obedience and trust in God's word. And they were going to do it. Verse 10 says, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. We'll stop there for now. There are many layers to this episode. Top of the list is the prefiguring of Christ and his substitutionary atonement on the cross as the Lamb of God. Slain on that same place, by the way. And that's worth its own sermon, but for now, we see that Abraham passes the test. God is not testing Abraham to learn whether or not he has true faith. God knows all things. He knows that. But from the, the, the human perspective, God is giving Abraham 
the ultimate opportunity to show his faith, to demonstrate it, to prove it, to vindicate it, to to show it's real. God knows Abraham's faith is real. It's there. It's in his heart. He trusts him. But like the atomic bomb, it's designed to go off. And it needs to, at some point, go off and be detonated and show itself real. It needs to be vindicated. And you know what? God is glorified when the bomb goes off. When heart faith translates into action, even sacrificial action. And so God sees in Abraham faith demonstrated. And he is glorified in that. And you see, that's what's happening here, right? This is not Abraham coming to faith. He already has faith. He was already justified by faith way back 30 years before Genesis 15. But here, what we're seeing is the greatest demonstration, the vindication of Abraham's true faith. And so now back to James 2. You can go back to to James. So James says this in response to that display of faith. He says, James 2, 22, You see, speaking of Abraham, that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Faith was working with his works. Meaning, Abraham was doing all this out of faith. Hebrews eleven nineteen even confirms that Abraham reasoned. He was going to go through with it, but that you know, God would even raise Isaac from the dead. That's how pure his trust in God's promises was. And as a result of his actions or works, it says his faith was perfected. Now, this doesn't mean Abraham's faith was incomplete or not real before offering Isaac, as if he had, you know, 50% faith until this moment. Now, but this word for perfect, teleao in the Greek, it speaks of something that's complete or mature, something that has reached its end or goal. So think back to that fruit tree. You know, the tree is alive the second the seed germinates. The second the seed germinates, it's a real living tree. It's a, it's a live tree, but it's not complete. It's not perfected, we would say. The tree only becomes complete when it reaches its goal, which is what? To bear fruit. That's, after all, why you plant a fruit tree. You want fruit. Well, likewise, when we come to faith, God implants new life within us. And at the moment of faith, we're truly saved. We're truly born again and living, but we're not complete. We've not yet reached our goal. And what is that goal? Well, according to God, what is the, the end or the, the goal of your faith? It is to bear much fruit, to glorify God by bearing much fruit. You all know Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We're saved by grace through faith apart from works. But I trust you also know verse 10 that we are saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You see, God planted divine life in us that we might bear fruit. And as with Abraham, that fruit comes as a consequence of saving faith. And when it comes out, faith can be said to be perfected or completed or mature, meaning it's reached its intended end. None of this sounds like salvation by works though, does it? James is not even hinting at salvation by works, but the point he's making is that through, or through Abraham is that works serve to complete or demonstrate or vindicate real faith. Works vindicate real faith. They prove that you're alive. They prove that you're a good tree. You're a living tree. And so he adds verse 23 now, James 2. He says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now here James himself quotes Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believed God. God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the same verse that Paul makes a big deal out of in Romans 4, where he's proven the point that Abraham was justified by faith.
apart from works. And you know, James knows that. James believes that. Decades before Isaac, God promised, like we read this morning, that he would bless Abraham. And in Genesis 15, as Abraham looked up into the stars that night, hearing God's promises again, he, he really believed. He surrendered in his heart to just a full trust in God. And it was in that moment, as a result, God justified him, meaning God reckoned him righteous. That is justification by faith alone. And James believes that. But he's not making that point here, though, in James 2. We think about Paul. We did all Paul last week, right? And Paul, he's writing all about the timing of Abraham's justification. When did it happen? When was Abraham justified? And Paul's point is, it's before works. It's before the law of Moses, before circumcision, before any works. He was justified by faith alone, apart from works. That's Paul's concern, the timing of justification. But here in James 2, he's not concerned about the timing of Abraham's justification at all. His concern is the reality of justification. And Abraham really was justified all those years before Isaac when he first believed. But when he was going to sacrifice Isaac, that's when his justification was demonstrated. It was vindicated as real. And so James speaks of scripture as being fulfilled here. That doesn't always refer to prophecy, by the way. The word fulfill can mean just to fill up, to bring something to its ultimate significance. And indeed, Abraham's faith found its ultimate significance in his work of sacrificial obedience. And as a result, he's called the friend of God. His right standing with God was confirmed by his works. And so now speaking of works, if you want to get this whole passage right in James 2, you need to understand this contrast of works, right? And this is a contrast between Paul and James from last week. James throughout, he uses works in a positive sense. Have you noticed that? When he uses works, he's always talking about spiritual fruit. But setting Paul last week, it's evident he almost always uses works in a negative sense. When Paul talks about salvation apart from works, he's not talking about spiritual fruit that results. When he talks about works, he's talking about deeds of the flesh, deeds of self-righteousness, deeds done trying to earn God's favor. And, and all of those works are worthless. They contribute nothing to your salvation. And, you know, to this, James would give a hearty amen. But see, he's not talking about that, though. He's talking about works after salvation, i.e. spiritual fruit. And these works vindicate salvation. We're talking about God glorifying obedience. Like James has said, helping the needy, showing mercy to the poor, ministering to the orphan and the widow. These are, these are the types of spiritual fruit, James says, that reveal who the real friends of God are. They demonstrate justification. That's what it's about. These works demonstrate or vindicate justification. It's a lot. I know it's a lot. I hope it's coming together. And hopefully this final contrast will tie it all together. So we find lastly now, number three, a contrast of justification. Contrast of faith, contrast of works, now, a contrast of justification. And we'll explain, but look again at verse 24. He comes to his main point, and he says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And here it is. It's the most controversial verse in this section. And it seems to outright contradict the Apostle Paul. But hopefully you see now, this verse does not exist in a vacuum. You can't just take it and pluck it out of its context. But remember, it, it comes at the end of a long argument. And James is reaching a conclusion here after this example of Abraham. And the point he's making is the same as back in verse 20. The faith without works is useless. 
I think we've already established James is not teaching salvation by works. So then what does he mean, though? He's making actually a rather straightforward point, but most people get hung up on the verbiage. But it all clears up when you understand the, the terms he uses. You know, as good Protestants, when we see the word justified, we think of one thing and one thing only, declared righteous. That's how Paul uses this term, justified. It's one of the main meanings of this term, dikaiao in the Greek. It can mean to declare someone righteous by way of a verdict. And that's what Paul means all the time in like Romans 3.24. We are justified as a gift by his grace through Christ Jesus. God, by his grace, just declares us to be righteous through our faith. He reckons Christ's righteousness to us as a gift to declare righteous. But there's another meaning to this term justified. Like most words, they have a range of meaning. And take the word football, for example. You know, in many countries, the word football refers to a game that two teams play by kicking a ball with their feet into a net. It's really boring to watch. But the correct meaning of football is a game where two teams are fighting to bring a a ball into the end zone. That's the right meaning of football. Anyway, same word, two meanings. Sorry to all the the soccer fans. I just, I don't get it. I'm sorry. I just don't get it. But you see, the word justified in scripture has multiple meanings. And sometimes justification can refer to the declaration of righteousness, but other times it can refer to the demonstration of righteousness. For example, 1 Timothy 3.16 says Jesus was justified in the spirit. That means none other than he was vindicated. He was proven in the spirit. Matthew 11.19 says wisdom is justified by her deeds, meaning wisdom is vindicated by its results or its fruit. And so elsewhere in scripture, the same word means not a declaration, but a demonstration And indeed, this is clearly how James uses this word here in chapter 2. And it clears everything up. Verse 21, Abraham was justified by works, meaning he was vindicated by works. Verse 24, man is justified by works, meaning he's demonstrated to be righteous by his works. Works are the fruit or the display of salvation. That's all he means. And to help, in case you still don't get it, you know, would it help you to know Paul said the same thing? Do you know there's one passage where Paul said we're justified by works? We're so used to hearing Paul say justified by faith alone, and we are. But what do you make of Romans 2.13? Where Paul says, it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. It sounds like James, but it's actually Paul. And of course, he means, though, displayed righteous. The doers of the law are the ones who are displayed to be righteous. A righteousness which comes by faith alone. But you see, Paul doesn't sound so contrary to James anymore, does he? Remember, James is dealing with people who've made a profession of faith. But how do you know if they're real or not? Well, their faith claim is justified or vindicated or demonstrated by their works. That's how you know. And such vindication does not come by faith alone. Salvation comes by faith alone, but the vindication of your faith claim does not come by faith alone. He says in verse 24, but understand James is not saying faith alone is insufficient to save. Now going back to that contrast of faith, he's writing against people who have faith, but no works, meaning intellectual assent the faith of demons. And so when he says they can't be justified by faith alone, he means intellectual assent. That's not a vindication of your faith. That's that's not enough. And so to put it all together now, verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. It means that your faith claim is not justified or vindicated by mere intellectual assent. But your faith claim is demonstrated to be true by your deeds, by your works. 
That's what shows true faith. Works are the vindication of a living faith. That's the essence of James 2. Same as Paul. But the works are the vindication of living faith. I'm going to do just one more thing to help tie this all together for you. That'll be enough of James for now. But you can turn over to John 15. John 15. Now, historically, there's been so much confusion surrounding this passage in James 2 on faith and works. We even learned last week how Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation in his youth, could not reconcile the two. But all that confusion would be erased if people just realized James, he's saying the exact same thing as Jesus said in John 15. Same thing, same point. They may use a few different terms, but they're making the exact same point. In John 15, Jesus is teaching on his relationship with his disciples. And he's telling us what identifies a true and false disciple. John 15, look at verse 1. Christ says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may, may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now stop there for a second. You know the analogy. You've heard this before. Christ is the vine. We're the branches. Disciples are the branches. But there are true and false branches. So how do you spot the false branches? Well, he says the presence of fruit. That's not what makes you a true branch. A true branch is made just by abiding in Jesus. So he says in verse 3, you are clean, i.e. justified, because of the word. Faith in Christ, that's what makes you a part of the vine. But the result is that you're going to bear fruit. Verse 4, he says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now here Jesus reiterates the necessity of abiding in him that we might bear fruit. You see, this fruit, it doesn't even come from us or our own power. But the fruit comes as a result of our abiding relationship with Christ. Now verse 6. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Here's now a warning for all those false branches. There are some people who they've made a profession of faith, but they don't have possession of faith. That's made crystal clear because you're a branch that you're dried, you're withered, there's no fruit. He says they don't abide with Christ, which is the same thing as saying they don't bear fruit. They're cut off from the branch and therefore from the vine. And so they're only good for one thing. That's the fire. Kindling for the fire. They're outside salvation still, proven by their deeds. Instead, now get this, verse 7, verse 8. He says, instead though, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. And then verse 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so become my disciples? No. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Do you have a problem with that statement? I hope not. I mean, it should make perfect sense. Bear much fruit. And you prove to be Christ's disciples. It it makes sense. Pretty clear. He's not teaching you're saved by bearing fruit. No, believing the gospel makes you a disciple. But bearing fruit, that's the evidence, the demonstration, the vindication that you're a real branch. You're a good branch. You're really attached to the vine. Makes sense, right? Well, when you understand that James is saying the exact same thing, Hopefully, it should clear up all the confusion with a passage like James 2. You see that a man 
is justified by works and not by faith alone. Whereas we've learned, a person is demonstrated that they're right with God by their spiritual fruit and not by mere intellectual assent, not by an empty profession of faith. And James, we find, he's, he's once again merely repeating the teaching of his older brother, like he does all the time. The works are the vindication of a good branch, living faith. So are you willing to recognize it now? That faith without works is useless. The teaching in scripture, it's, it's clear everywhere. Salvation is not by works. It's by faith alone in Christ. Paul would say that. James would say that. Jesus would say that. That is the only gospel. But they all would likewise say that works are essential and that they reveal and vindicate and prove you have real faith, that you're a vine, you're a branch attached to the vine. And in fact, that's, that's the goal of your faith, to bear fruit. God saved you by faith that you might, might bear much fruit. So, bear fruit. You know, all that's left to do now is really for you to examine your own life. Because this is not merely an intellectual exercise. We've done a lot of study today, and it's, it's necessary when you come to a challenging passage. You've got to sort through it all and, and let it unfold. But, you know, now it's time to, to take in the message of James. You understand what he's saying now, I hope. But now you need to make sure he's not saying it against you. Because this is a warning. There's a real warning here against a faith that lives only in your mind. And, you know, there's still plenty of people like that especially in American cultural Christianity. You know, they grew up in the church. They were baptized. They abstained from the big sins. They, they even go to church sometimes, you know. They're, they're fine with God. Like, just leave me alone. I, I know God. I'm fine with God. But theirs is a cold, dead orthodoxy. You wouldn't really know they're a Christian by, by watching them. I mean, they, they say they believe in Jesus. He's their buddy. But you would never know that. Their faith never lives, never acts, never works. Surely never sacrifices like Abraham. Like they're not going to, it's not get crazy here. I mean, is that you? There are many warnings like this in scripture. And understand these warnings are, are, are a merciful thing. Would you rather discover that your faith was false on the day of judgment? Or now when there's still time to, to truly repent and believe and give your life to Christ. So examine your own life. Is there any fruit on the tree? Do you evidence your faith by obedience to God? Like the atomic bomb, does your faith claim ever go off and result in real action? Like we've been learning in James, you see the orphan and the widow in need. Or you see that impoverished brother in church next to you. Do you close your heart against them? Are you the one that says, you know, be warm, be filled, but you do nothing to actually help them? Or do you reach out and show the same love and mercy which God showed you? And just make sure your faith claim translates to real action and worship. God planted this vineyard of the church because he likes fruit. He wants to see some fruit. He's glorified by fruit. And if your tree is barren, well, Take that seriously. Intellectual assent is not enough to save you. You need to fully surrender your life and your will to Christ. And so do that. He will transform you. And, and by nature, you will bear much fruit. But you need to make sure your, your faith in him is genuine. And you've entirely given your life, your will, and your actions to your master. There are times we all fail. We fail to act on our faith. In this, we repent. That too is fruit, by the way. But just make sure that you see times when your faith is vindicated. Make sure it doesn't exist only in your mind, but it, it comes out in a life of obedience to the Lord. And are you striving to, in love, because you want to, obey God? And by this, Abraham, though far from perfect, he was affirmed as the friend of God. That's what this justification is all about. It's a reconciliation with God by faith in Christ. 
which is vindicated by works. And in this, we too can be revealed as the friends of God. There's a lot of people today, they claim to know Jesus. They claim he's their buddy, but they don't walk with him. So how about we let Christ himself tell us what the real friends of God look like? You know, first John, or rather John 15, same passage, John 15, verse 14, a little bit later, he says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You're my friends if you do what I command you. So let's display our friendship with God by faith and works. By a faith that works. A faith that is vindicated by works. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we praise you for the word revealed this morning that your word and scripture, it's true. And it is clear. There may be times of, of, of challenge where we need to study your word, but you've given us the spirit to help us do so, and it's clear. Free from error, free from contradiction, and, and so uh, valuable, invaluable. We've done a lot of studying a passage, Lord, that, that needs study, but I pray we don't let that clog our minds where we ironically fall prey to the same intellectual assent only type of faith that James writes against. It's not enough just to study the Bible, Lord. We need now to, to live and to act to take a passage like this in and even examine our own faith. I trust we all here claim to believe in you. Is that claim true? It's not meant to make anyone you know, fearful per se, but, but just to look for fruit. Our, fruit. our faith was designed to go off, to, to, to bear much fruit. And I pray it does, Lord, convict us. May we draw nearer to Christ by faith. That's how we bear fruit, by abiding in him. So we don't need to just think about works. We just, we need more of Christ in our lives. And I pray you reveal more of the Savior to us. May we leave here just desiring to abide more with the Savior. The, the, the sacrificial lamb has come. Lord, you've, you've made the ultimate sacrifice for us to draw us back to yourself, to reconcile us by faith alone. And I pray as we turn to this Savior and as we will abide with him by faith, that we do bear much fruit and we change the world by just how we live. So be with us, abide with us, and may we abide with you always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.